Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word together, I pray for soft hearts toward your truth. I pray that as we consider this passage preserved by your spirit for our good, uh, that we would have the response that you would want us to have, one of, of listening to you and hearing from you and obeying you and doing exactly what it would be that you would have us to do. Father, I pray against any sort of resistance or hardness in our hearts as we consider your truth together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mistakes were made. If you live in D.C. long enough or pay any attention to politics whatsoever, you'll be sure to hear this phrase. Mistakes were made is an expression used by politicians and others to acknowledge that a particular situation was handled poorly or inappropriately. And it's used so frequently across the river that it has its own Wikipedia page. But this passive, vague construction seeks to avoid any direct admission of wrongdoing. It fails to specify the nature or extent of the mistakes. And it does not identify the person or people who made said mistakes. And it fails to admit any ill intent. Mistakes were made, according to the New York Times, as a classic Washington linguistic construct. It was popularized by Nixon's administration during the Watergate scandal, but you might be surprised to learn that the phrase dates all the way back to President Ulysses S. Grant. Politicians from both sides of the aisle use it, and now it's commonplace in business, sports, and entertainment. Mark Memmott of NPR calls this phrase the king of non-apologies. While those who work in public relations might be tempted to use this phrase in their line of work, can you imagine if we used it in our personal relationships? Can you imagine telling your spouse or your parent or your child or your boss or your colleague or your good friend simply that mistakes were made? And yet, we can be tempted to use equally unhelpful non-apologies. Take, for example, I'm sorry that you feel that way. The word sorry accepts no responsibility. There's no acknowledgement of fault. There's no admission of wrong. There's no expression of genuine remorse. There is merely the faint suggestion that the offended person might be overreacting. Sorry is an attempt to sidestep the consequences of our sin without a sincere confession of guilt and a restoration of peace. What if we approached God with such non-apologies? What if our prayers of confession included the vague words, mistakes were made? Would that be sufficient for forgiveness? Would that be enough to receive God's mercy and grace? And if not, what then must we do when we find ourselves facing the consequences of our own sin? In our gripping passage this morning, 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 through 25, we confront King Saul at the bottom of his death spiral, a decline that began all the way back in chapter 13. And in the face of his mounting sin and the dreadful consequence that continued to pile, Saul is totally desperate. He's scrapping to save himself from humiliation and destruction, and he's doing everything except for the one thing that would actually work. And when confronted with our own sin, it's in Saul's example of what not to do that we find the theme of this passage. 
True repentance from sin opens the door to full forgiveness from our merciful, merciful God. True repentance from sin opens the door to full forgiveness from our merciful God. In this passage, there are four main movements. First, Saul faces a problem, and that is the daunting assembly of the Philistine army. We then find his desperate and deficient attempt to find direction for what to do. Third, he receives a repeated message from beyond the grave before the final movement, his last supper. But first, verse 3 of chapter 28 provides a brief background. So look with me there as we open God's word together. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now this verse sets the context by reminding us that the prophet Saul had died, the prophet revered by Israel but disregarded by King Saul when they were prophet and king together. We also learn that Saul has removed the mediums and necromancers from the land. These two words refer to those who practice divination, which is repeatedly forgiven, forbidden by God and his law. And their specific type of divination, common throughout the ancient Near East, is conjuring spirits from the dead to gain some type of knowledge or guidance or direction. And with this introduction, verse 4 reveals that Saul has a problem. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel and encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Now, this is the third time that the author of 1 Samuel has used this exact wording to describe the Philistines. They've gathered or assembled in preparation for a battle with Israel. The first time, back in chapter 13, a trembling King Saul and his fearful army were waiting for the prophet Samuel to arrive so that he could offer a sacrifice and give them direction from the Lord. This is what Samuel had told Saul all the way back in chapter 10, verse 8. He had instructed Saul, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. But instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive, Saul took the situation into his own hands. Watching his people flee in fear, he violated God's express word and he offered a sacrifice himself. And this massive early misstep by Saul was the beginning of the end of his reign. The second time that we find the Philistines assembled for battle is in chapter 17, when their giant champion named Goliath is taunting the God of Israel. Instead of stepping forward to become Israel's champion, King Saul, the tallest man in the land, allows the shepherd boy David to fight in his stead. And of course, David is victorious and he gains even greater fame and acclaim than the cowardly king. So twice, In Saul's reign, the Philistines, Israel's chief enemy during this period, have assembled for battle against the army of God's people. And both times, Saul has been gripped by fear and driven by self-protection. And this was the opposite of Samuel's instruction to Israel when Saul was first confirmed as king in chapter 12, verse 14. Samuel had told Israel and King Saul, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So what then does Samuel do this third time that the Philistines assemble for war? Well, when he sees the size of the army, he trembles in fear. And Saul's problem is the enormity of the Philistines' camp. 
But that's just his military problem. In verse 6, we also find that he has a guidance problem. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul avails himself of the typical means by which Israel's king might find direction from the Lord, but the Lord doesn't answer. But doesn't Saul do the right thing here? Isn't it right for him to inquire of the Lord? At face value, it certainly seems like the right thing, but the problem is his motivation. He always seems to be more concerned with his own protection and reputation than defending the Lord's honor in the face of his sworn enemies. He appears to be more afraid of making mistakes than he is interested in doing what is right. Going all the way back to Samuel's warning in chapter 12, we don't find him fearing the Lord, but fearing the Philistines. He doesn't seem eager to serve the Lord but his per- and his purposes, but rather his own. And we don't see him acknowledging his previous rebellions and wrongs, and we don't see him humbling himself before the Lord. And when God had offered direction and guidance uh, through Samuel previously, he disobeyed. So why would God provide guidance now when Saul has repeatedly over and over ignored his counsel? And so the heavens are like brass. There's no response from the Lord. And this isn't even the first time that this has happened to Saul. In chapter 14, when Saul had made a rash vow that prevented his own soldiers from eating during battle, and his own son Jonathan had unknowingly eaten some honey, God would not answer Saul's request for direction until the offender was identified. And of course, that offender was his son. But Jonathan wasn't the problem. Saul and his foolish and unnecessary edict was. And this passage reminds us of Saul's one poor decision after another. The Lord is silent because his long, patient suffering with Saul, 40 years, 40 years of patience with no response of repentance has reached its tragic end. And so Saul really has two problems, an outsized opponent and no direction from God. And he fails to do the one thing that he needs to do, which is to repent for his repeated rebellion against the Lord. But instead, in the second movement, starting in verse 7, Saul addresses his problems with a desperate and deficient solution. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now Saul had rightly removed the mediums and necromancers from the land. This wise decision was in accordance with God's commandments in, in the law in places like Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 18. And the reason that God had opposed this pagan practice of conjuring spirits from the dead was because he intended to be the only voice of guidance for his people. He would guide them through prophets like Samuel and Moses before him, if only the people would listen. But Saul violates God's law and his own edict as king, and he asks his servants for a medium. And in an indictment on his own administration, they happen to know of one nearby in Endor who's practicing. Now, according to Joshua 17, verse 11, Endor was one of the former Canaanite cities that the Israelites had failed to dispossess in their conquest of the land. 
So perhaps this woman is a Canaanite descendant, a, a pagan practitioner of dark magic, or perhaps she's just an Israelite rebel. Either way, Saul, in verse 8, disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Well, if you need the cover of night or the cloak of disguise to do something, if you're hiding your behavior behind closed doors, those are likely signs that you shouldn't be doing whatever it is. Jesus says this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Where are you living apart from the truth? What are the deeds in your life that need to be brought to the light? Where are you doing something behind closed doors that you know need not be seen by others? Well, Saul is in this predicament because of his rebellion against God, and yet he violates yet another command to accomplish his goal. We should all think twice before violating God's word for the sake of expediency. Saul hides in the dark because his deeds are evil, and he asks this medium to conjure up the spirit of whomever he names. But in verse 9, she balks at his request, at least initially. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now Saul and the medium have something in common. They're both more concerned with the consequences of their sin than they are the actual sin itself. They show no regard for God or his word. They're merely worried about getting caught. But when we sin, our chief concern should be how it affects the God who created us and the entire world where he has placed us. We should care about what he thinks, about what we say and what we think and what we do. We should be most worried about the effect of our actions on a relationship with the God who created us. Ironically, Saul swears by the very Lord against whom he has rebelled, the Lord whose very word he is violating in this medium's presence, the Lord who has rejected him as king for his rebellion, and he swears that she will not die. The king offers this woman safety that he has no right to give, for God is the ultimate judge. And yet she seems satisfied. And in verse 11, proceeds with her sin. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. Now this is a really sad and shocking turn in the account. You see Saul's desperation. You see his self-deceit. He so desperately wants to know what he should do with this large imposing army of the Philistines. And so he asks this medium to bring up the spirit of Israel's beloved prophet, the very prophet who had anointed Saul and helped him briefly, the prophet whom Saul had disregarded during his reign, the prophet who had proclaimed the Lord's rejection of Saul as king when he rebelled. And in the verses that follow, we see the result of this request, starting in verse 12. 
When the woman saw Saul, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. The medium cries out when she sees Samuel. The text doesn't tell us why, but she's clearly surprised. Perhaps it's because she's running a racket and she's not used to actually seeing spirits. Or perhaps she's so used to working with evil spirits, she sees Samuel, who clearly is not evil. Well, regardless of the reason, it's clear that this is a unique and a startling experience for her. It's hard to know exactly what's going on here, but it seems like she can see Samuel's image because at Saul's insistence, she describes his appearance to him. And the distinguishing feature that helps him to know for sure that this is Samuel is the prophet's robe, the very robe uh, that was torn from Saul's hand when God rejected him as king back in chapter 15. And so Saul bows to the ground in reverence. This is perhaps the posture he would have been wise to take toward the prophet when he was alive and when he delivered God's word to the king. And here's the obvious and long debated question that these verses beg. Is this actually Saul's spirit? While many of the reformers believe that it couldn't possibly be, most modern commentators believe that it is, and I happen to agree with them. In addition to the startled cry of the medium, the author of 1 Samuel treats the conjured, conjured spirit as if it is Samuel. He looks like Samuel. He's dressed like Samuel. The prophet's words from, from the grave match his words from his time on earth. And he seems to have knowledge of the future that could only come from the Lord himself. And so adults and kids alike, if this causes concern, it's good to remember that this is an exceptional experience we shouldn't be scared that we might encounter a spirit like Samuel's, but we should also never use Ouija boards or other similar pagan practices that might bring exposure to them. Starting in verse 15, the third movement of the passage, Samuel delivers a message to Saul, but save for a new detail, his words are very familiar. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Now, the author doesn't reveal whether Saul can now see Samuel's spirit, but he can clearly hear what Samuel is saying. Samuel wants to know why Saul has done this thing, and he shares his desperate and deficient reasoning with the prophet in response. Samuel then challenges the king's logic. If the Lord has rejected you as king, Saul, what makes you think that I can help you? And he highlights yet another failure of the king, the nail in his kingly coffin. Verses 17 to 18. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. 
When you go back to the chapter where Saul failed to carry out God's word against the Amalekites, you find this chilling proclamation from Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, this is what Samuel declares. He says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has also rejected you from being king. And Saul actually commits both of these sins. He commits rebellion, direct rebellion against God's word. And here we see him performing divination, two things that are an abomination to God. And in the face of Samuel's declaration, you would hope that Saul would repent all the way back in chapter 15. And even though the kingdom had been ripped from his hand, there was still a chance for him to be right with God. But this is how Saul responded in chapter 15, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may, I may bow before the Lord. He asked for Samuel's pardon, but the prophet doesn't grant it. And because he doesn't grant it, we know that he has not repented. He simply wants to be seen with Samuel. He wants to be seen as pardoned. He shows no sign of remorse. He's not actually grieved by his sin or concerned how it has affected God or his relationship with him. And this highlights for us the big difference between admitting our sin, acknowledging our sin, and actually repenting from it. Saul revealed his heart again in verse 30 of chapter 15, just a few verses later. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Saul's non-apology is the equivalent of mistakes were made. He takes no real responsibility. He's only concerned about his image, about what the people will think and not what God thinks. This has been his problem all along. And when this happened, Samuel refused to humor this impenitent request. This was their last interaction before Samuel's death. And he left Saul by himself and did not go with him. And sadly, nothing has changed in Saul's heart since, and nothing has changed in Samuel's message to the king either, except for one addendum in verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. The Lord rejected Saul as king long ago, but he's remained patient and long-suffering with Saul as a man, as a person, by keeping him alive on earth. But that patience has finally run its course. And yet there's still time to heed this warning. There's still time for him to repent. But instead of repentance, his response is a very familiar one. He collapses in fear and fatigue. And this medium who has obeyed his request offers him a final meal, his last supper, starting in verse 20. Then Saul fell at one, once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. 
He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they arose and went away that night. Now in this fourth and final movement of the passage, Saul's Last Supper, we see that the company we keep matters. The counsel we seek can make a difference. And what Saul needs more than anything else after this strange and exhausting exchange with Samuel is the call to repent. The day of his death has been declared. It's on the other side of the sunrise. Most of us will never know when our time on earth is finished, but Saul has a unique opportunity here to do what is right, to humble himself before God and to repent. But the two men traveling with him say nothing worth recording. The medium only insists that he eat his last supper before he leaves in the dark of night. It's not hard to see the echoes of Saul's final meal in the last supper of Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Like Saul, Judas was more concerned about what people thought than what God thought. He would suggest that money should be given to the poor while he himself was stealing from the coffers. Like Saul, Judas heard directly from God, Saul through the prophet Samuel, and Judas through his friend, the prophet Jesus. Like Saul, Judas slipped away from that last supper in the dark of night because his deeds were evil and he would not repent. They were both more concerned for what they could get from, for themselves, fleeting things like money and fame. And they both faced their deaths, unwilling to acknowledge their sin and ask God for the forgiveness that he stands ready to shower upon all who will humble themselves and simply ask. From the beginning of this passage to the end, Saul is understandably worried about the Philistine army. His terror in the face of such a daunting military power is warranted, and we would have likely trembled too. But the one thing that Saul needed to do both before he learned of his death and after is to trust and obey the Lord, to seek God's kingdom and not his own, to seek God's righteousness instead of violating his law. This, after all, was his role as king, to represent the king of kings on his throne. And yet time after time, he failed. Now, there are certainly countless reasons for us to be marked by fear and anxiety and worry today. Temptations abound to solve our serious problems by leaning on our own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord. But Jesus instructed in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, not to be anxious about anything. He told the disciples, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, that is, all these needs about which you worry will be added to you. Pastor and professor Kevin DeYoung writes this about Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 33. He says, Jesus doesn't call on us to seek a divine word before scheduling another semester of classes or deciding between bowling and putt-putt golf. He calls us to run hard after him, his commands, and his glory. The decision to be in God's will is not the choice between Memphis or Fargo or engineering or art. It's the daily decision we face to seek God's kingdom or ours, submit to his lordship or not, live according to his rules or our own. The question God cares most about is not where should I live, but do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and do I love my neighbor 
as myself. I know that many of you are facing daunting circumstances worthy of trembling and fear. But I also know that what DeYoung says here is true. If we focus on fixing the problems of our life without first seeking God and His kingdom, we're simply rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic. If you're here today and you've never repented for your sin, you've never cried out for the forgiveness that only God can offer, I want to invite you to do that today. Because no matter what we're facing, our greatest problem, just like Saul's, is not the problem before us that is eliciting worry and fear, but it's our sin within us that separates us from a holy God. Saying I'm sorry is insufficient. Desperation in your situation is not equal to repentance. But true repentance from sin opens the door to full forgiveness from our merciful God. That's the theme of this passage. And there are three elements of true biblical repentance. The first is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, an acknowledgement that you have wronged God and likely others with your actions. This is not to be confused with worldly sorrow or remorse over getting caught or concern for the consequences of your sin. Mistakes were made and we made them. The second element of repentance is renouncing the sin. It's a commitment to turn away from it. That's what repentance means. It means that we've changed our mind. And the third element is a turning from that sin toward God. A commitment to obey Him, to obey His Word, to walk with Him in obedience. Now when you do laundry, if you do laundry, there are some stains that no chemical, no amount of scrubbing will remove. And centuries before Jesus came to earth, the prophet Malachi described the coming Messiah, who we now know to be Jesus, to be like a fuller soap. There would be no stain of sin that he could not remove. Malachi described him as a refiner's fire. No impurity would be too much for him to remove. All we must do is repent from our sin and trust in God's provision of Jesus' death in our place. And when we do, our merciful and gracious God removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. None of us has Saul's luxury of knowing our last day. So if you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, I humbly implore you to do it today. We have no idea how much longer we will live on this earth, but today is the day of repentance. And if you do put your trust in Christ today, please tell someone that you did so that we can encourage you in your very first steps of faith in Christ. For those of us who have already placed our trust in Christ, this passage prompts us to remember that repentance is not a one-time act. And just as we acknowledge for the very first time our insufficiency and Christ's supremacy, we must do this each and every day. Mistakes are made daily and we're the ones who make them. And they aren't just mistakes. They're rebellions against the holy God who created and governs this universe. The one and only God who has dug a path from our sinful station to a right relationship with himself. And that path goes through the cross of Christ every single time. When we sin, we must plead Jesus' precious blood and the all-sufficiency of his once-for-all sacrifice as our only hope for forgiveness. 
As I considered this passage this week, my own apologies came to mind. How I repent of my sin against others as well. Mistakes were made is not enough. I must be specific in what I have done. I must acknowledge how I have wronged. And I must commit myself to obedience, which is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, later in this service, you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we must not miss its meaning like Judas did. We often open communion with these words on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And Judas, the betrayer, ate the bread broken by Jesus without understanding how it represented the very body Jesus would give for us on the cross. Judas drank the cup without recognizing that it pictured the blood that Jesus would shed for the sins of many. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we must not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. If there's unconfessed sin in our lives, we should bring it before him and claim the power of Christ's blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if there's unconfessed sin with people in this room, perhaps the person sitting next to you, a fellow church member, take advantage of this precious ordinance to confess and repent before sharing the table and be willing to dispense forgiveness as you have been forgiven in Christ. There's something supernatural and spectacular about unity forged by repentance and forgiveness, no matter how repeated it might be. That's what makes membership in a local church family like this one so special. We sin against one another and we forgive one another and we plead the precious blood of Christ together. Mistakes were made and we made them. But the abundant grace of God is greater than all our sin. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for all of us in this room that we would respond to this message of your grace in humility and by repenting of our sin. There, we all have sin in our lives that we need to bring before you and ask for forgiveness. And perhaps we have sin against others that we need to ask for forgiveness too. I want to pray for the people in this room that are wrestling with whether or not to give their lives to you, to trust in Christ for salvation. And if you're here this morning and that, that describes you, I pray that you would um, follow me in this very prayer. Father, I acknowledge that I have sinned against you, a holy God. I recognize that my sins are an affront to you. I recognize that you have given your son Jesus his death, his resurrection to pay for those sins. And I entrust myself to you and your care for salvation. And I do this in Jesus' name. And for all of us, God, help us to repent today. Help us to be marked as people who are willing to ask for forgiveness and to grant it as you see fit. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.